Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast. The following episode is part of our U.S.-China Horizons series. As bilateral tensions continue to rise, NCUSCR explores key developing areas in which the two countries continue to interact every day. These arenas are not without competition and friction. However, they could be fundamentally disrupted if the U.S. and China were to cease engagement in them. For more videos and podcasts from this series, please visit us at ncuscr.org slash horizons. Global fish consumption has risen rapidly since 1960, resulting in a 25% increase in overexploited fish stocks in the past 30 years alone. The United States and China are key drivers of the $150 billion wild seafood industry, making them leading stakeholders in ensuring its sustainable management. Tabitha Mallory, founder and CEO of the China Ocean Institute, discusses how China and the U.S. contribute to both the problems and solutions for conserving this valuable and vulnerable common resource. Dr. Mallory is an affiliate professor of the University of Washington Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies and is one of the National Committee's public intellectual fellows. She has consulted for organizations such as the United Nations Foundation, the World Wildlife Fund, the World Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and the Packard Foundation. We're very excited to have her here today to talk about this important topic. Could you summarize a few of the key problems facing the world's fisheries? Yes. So the starting point is really industrialized fishing. And that began in the late 19th century, but it really got underway in the 1950s. And there's both the mentality and the technology as key drivers here. So the, the first one is the idea that we can approach fisheries. Kind of, it kind of comes from this like era of modernization, that we can approach fisheries the same way as we do producing goods in a factory or even the way we approach land-based agriculture. So if you put in a certain number of inputs, you can expect to get a certain number of outputs, but wild fisheries don't really work that way. Um, and then second is technology and the, the buildup of, of technology. We began building huge fishing vessels with the idea of you know, harvesting more fish and that technology keeps improving to the point where today it's almost too good. So we're just catching all the fish. And a lot of those big vessels and the technology has been propped up by subsidies given to the industry. And that's still a really big problem today. There's a lot of talk at the WTO about how to reduce those fishery subsidies. And the problem with subsidies is that it makes the industry profitable when it would otherwise not be. Um, so overfishing in general is kind of the main problem, you know, with these like factors feeding into it. But then when you kind of drill down into how you manage the problem, there's issues with illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing or IUU fishing. And so, for example, you might have a regulated fishing, but there's still illegal fishing going on. And that's really hard to monitor because the oceans are so huge. And plus the maritime law enforcement is really expensive. And then in another case, you might have unregulated fisheries, which means that people are still fishing just a free for all. So that's generally leading to overfishing. Um, and then you've got issues of poor governance, corruption, a lack of transparency, especially in how bilateral fisheries agreements are signed and what the conditions of those are, 
you know, how much is actually going to certain subsidy programs, stuff like that. And then in general, we are destroying our marine habitat. The, the biggest issue is climate change. That's going to continue to be a problem and just exacerbate everything else. But we're also destroying marine habitat through destructive fishing practices, through pollution, through land reclamation, and so on. What is China's role in the global fishing industry? And if you could define who China is, that would be perfect. Thanks. Mm -hmm. For global fishing, China has a large distant water fishing industry, and that's the industry that fishes on the high seas, which is the area of the ocean that belongs to no country, and also in the exclusive economic zones or EZs of other countries. And that's usually arranged through a bilateral fisheries access agreement. And so their, their fleet is the largest in the world now, but there are other countries that have had a head start on this. So um, when the Soviet Union was around, they were the largest. Uh, Russia has kind of since decreased their industry, but they're increasing it again. Uh, but you know, Japan is a really big player, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Spain. So China has not been around as long, but now they are the largest. And they also provide the largest number of subsidies to that industry compared to other countries. So the small scale local fishers make less of an impact, especially because they stay at home. So they're just kind of off China's coast. So it's, it's better to regulate that because it's just easier in terms of their Coast Guard forces to catch them. And also because China has an incentive to better regulate its own fisheries because it directly feels the impact. But the fleet that goes around the world, it's much further away, so it's, it's much harder to monitor that. So it's the industrial fishers that, that make the big impact. They have the big ships, they get the, the really big subsidies. In terms of the ownership structure, a lot of those are state-owned enterprises, um, but the industry is being increasingly privatized. And it's, it's hard to say definitively, you know, if like all of them are getting subsidies, but for the most part, they probably are, um, if anything, because it's just cost prohibitive to not engage in fishing without subsidies, particularly the fuel subsidies are a big part of it. Fuel is, is really expensive uh, and these ships are going far away. So they, they need that, that extra help. How has China's fishing activity, particularly in the South China Sea, complicated issues of maritime security, such as territorial disputes? Mm -hmm. So the fishing vessels and the Coast Guard vessels, to a certain extent, too, because they're the ones that police the fisheries, those have been used to assert China's maritime claims, and other countries have, have used them to a certain extent as well. And those vessels are one step below the naval forces. So this is the whole, you know, um, white holes versus gray holes dichotomy here. Because, you know, the optics of military vessels intercepting civilian vessels, is those aren't great. And plus, you don't want those conflicts to escalate into naval conflicts. So if you're using your you know, civilian fleets, the white holes, it's supposedly less likely to escalate into a, an actual military conflict. For the most part, using those kind of lower level white hole civilian fishing vessels and coast guards is less incendiary. But at the same time, it's really hard to reach any kind of agreement on fisheries in the South China Sea because you know, these issues just aren't, they're not just about fisheries, they're also about the maritime claims. If you've got your fishing vessels asserting presence in the South China Sea and your Coast Guard there to you know, supposedly enforce uh, those um, fishing regulations, then it's not just about 
creating an equitable solution for distributing the fisheries resources. Plus, one of the roadblocks to achieving any kind of agreement around the South China Sea is that China has stated that they would like to pursue some kind of joint development. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, their precondition for that is for the other claimant states to acknowledge that China has sovereignty or jurisdiction over the region, which other countries are hesitant to do. And so it's kind of at a stalemate. There's just a lack of political will to work out any kind of effective agreement to, to manage the fisheries there. Have people who are watching the region noticed that as fish stocks are dwindling, that's correlated to more I don't want to say aggressive, but more frequent trips into these contested waters or more insistent claims to those parts of the South China Sea where there are fish stocks? Yeah, so I, I think both of the issues are really intertwined. There is the, you know, the decrease in resources as a real driver of the fleets going farther to fish. Uh, so the, you know, the cost per unit effort is going up, you know, they're just having to work harder to, to catch any fish. Um, and so that, you know, also creates this, this pressure to assert presence and control over certain areas so that you can control those resources. Um, but it's very complicated by the fact that, you know, there's just these unresolved maritime disputes there as well that are based on the features themselves. And, in some ways, you know, it's driven by the, the resource needs, but on the other hand, sometimes the resource needs are used as an excuse to assert control over those areas. Um, you know, because one of the other really big resources in the South China Sea is the, the oil, the hydrocarbon resources in the seabed. And that's really taken up a lot of the attention of the claimant states that, you know, initially that's what they, they're after. I would argue that the fish resources in the long term are more valuable because you can manage them sustainably. They don't contribute to climate change the way hydrocarbon resources do. They're not as destructive to the marine environment, you know, by drilling in the seabed. Um, but it's, yeah, so there's, it's, it's really this kind of entangled knot of all these different interests. And sometimes, you know, the leverage is put on fisheries, you know, as a resource need. Sometimes it's an excuse for other priorities. So the Bureau of Fisheries in Beijing has argued that China's fishing industry is simply responding to the demand for seafood from developed countries. What is the role of the United States in the overexploitation of fisheries? Yeah, so China in the past, and still does to a certain extent, does sell to more developed areas like the European Union, Japan, the United States. Those are kind of the the areas that are known for their, you know, really high demand for seafood. Uh, but the Chinese now are actually shipping a lot more of their catch back home to China um, from their distant water fleet. And they've started to build up a retail industry in China to market that seafood uh, back home. Um, and at, at, they also are importing a lot more seafood as well from, from different countries, just as the you know, average consumer in China has more discretionary income and wants more luxury goods. You're seeing like a rise in consumption of sushi, for example. And there's also some skepticism about food safety in China. So people have more trust in imported products, food products, so that includes seafood. So the U.S., in terms of the U.S., they, the U.S. plays a, a really large role in consumer demand for seafood. 
but we actually don't know a great deal of detail about where that comes from, how sustainable those imports are. And there's one widely heard statistic that the U.S. imports 90% of its seafood. And so that's a lot. But if you look at, uh, there's a recent study that showed that, in fact, only about 62 to 65% of U.S. seafood imports are coming from foreign sources. And that's because what the U.S. is doing is taking a lot of its own catch and sending it abroad for processing and then re-importing it. So for example, you know, the U.S. has a really big Pollock industry. So it's like our Alaska Pollock. And so we'll take that and ship it to China where it's processed, you know, into fish nuggets and then we re-import those. But the, uh, the country of origin might not be the U.S. It might say China. In, in many cases, it does because uh, of the, the value added through the processing. So it, it becomes a product that comes from China on the label. Um, so we're not properly accounting for that. So having a little bit more detail about how that trade works would be really useful. And so that's another example of lack of transparency, you know, in terms of how much volume is in what category for these, these seafood imports and exports. So the U.S. has taken steps to address this. In the last couple of years, they started the seafood import monitoring program, but there's still a lot of issues that we need to work out uh, in terms of seafood traceability. And so, you know, for example, if you go to a restaurant, just kind of an average restaurant, not that any of us are really going to restaurants anytime recently because of COVID, but, um, you know, if you've asked your server, like, you know, do you know if this, this fish that I want to order is sustainable or, you know, or even more, like if you ask, you know, was this caught by, you know, pole in line, or was it caught by trawl? You know, your server is has going to have no idea. I've tried it. You know, like most people don't know unless you go to a restaurant that has specifically identified that as a priority. So there's still a lot of work to do. You know, we're, you know, things are moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. Oh, that, that's so funny that you added that. So I've, I've worked in a few different restaurants before, and I don't think even the chef or the manager yeah. will know anything about yeah. where fish comes from. I mean, it really would surprise people how much their fish is like, it's just brought in frozen from somewhere like on a truck delivered and then it's put in the deep freezer and who knows? Yeah. So that's very interesting. Um, yeah. I've, I've also looked like just on Amazon, you know, like in the, actually the case of Pollock, like what, if I'm trying to, as a consumer, just order some frozen fish on Amazon and there's just no information about the country of origin, is that that's really because there's not that much national regulation stipulating that these companies have to publish this information or make it readily available? Right. Yeah. So they're just not demanding that level of detail. Hmm. Um, and then there's you know th th there's also that issue of the processing adding you know like the adding value and if it's what I've heard is you know if you're adding. 40% or more of the value to the product through processing, then you can say it comes from your country. And so you really need to differentiate between, you know, the, 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 the country that caught the fish versus the country that processed it, you know, or what's known as the country of consignment. Um, and that doesn't, those regulations don't exist right now. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so how have China and the United States been involved in solutions to um, the problems that the world's fisheries are facing um, that we're causing? Uh, and how can they cooperate further in the future? Mm -hmm. 
So there was a really interesting arrangement that started in 1995, and it was the U.S.-China Shiprider Agreement, and that was to patrol uh, high seas drift net fishing of anadromous fish stocks. So those are stocks like salmon. And it allowed for, it was a Coast Guard partnership, so it allowed for the U.S. and China to board each other's Coast Guard vessels to, to patrol illegal fishing in the North Pacific. And, you know, they, they made some really good, you know, apprehensions of people engaged in illegal fishing, and not that long ago either, but you know, because of the tensions between the U.S. and China currently, my understanding is that there's really not much going on in, on that front. I think it's either temporarily or, or you know, more permanently discontinued. Um, and so, it, you know, it would be very hard to, unfortunately, to expand anything like that. But I, I always thought that was a really great example of, you know, how we could work together. And then under the Obama administration, when the strategic and economic dialogues were happening, the last couple of years of, of that dialogue, there was an ocean sidetrack. And this was you know, devoted just to these ocean issues. And I thought there was, that was really a great way to make progress on, on some of these issues. And so you know, that's not going on anymore. And, and you know, I would love to see something like that continued. And I think there's potential for the U.S. to cooperate with China on improving seafood traceability. So one of the issues is there's a mismatch in customs codes between the U.S. and China on seafood trade. And so that's part of the issue with keeping that traceability. If you're sending fish to China to process and then re-importing it, if the customs codes, the HS codes don't line up, that makes it really hard to keep track of that, that trade. We can partner on... IU fishing. The U.S., you know, in addition to that recent SIMP Act, uh, the U.S. is also trying to make some progress on the Maritime Safe Act, uh, the um, Seafood and Fisheries Enforcement Act. And China also recently has made a lot of progress on IU fishing, at, at least in terms of their laws. So they've, you know, incorporated some language about IU fishing in the recent distant water fishing regulations, um, you know, that, that regulate the distant water fishing industry. There's some language on that in the draft of their new fisheries law or the, the revised fisheries law. Um, and so the Chinese have stated that this is an important issue. And compared to like 10 years ago, the Chinese were denying that they had any problems with IU fishing. So, you know, this is a big step. And so I think because the, these priorities match, I think there's a lot of room for cooperation. And then the other thing is uh, marine environment is, it's a great, it's one of the few areas I think that is remaining in this, you know, tense period of US-China relations where we can have constructive cooperation because it's, it's not as politically sensitive compared to other issues like human rights, for example, is a starting point. And also marine environment isn't as high tech as some other industries. So there's less fear that the Chinese could be stealing U.S. technology on, on stuff like this, um, with the possible exception of oceanography, which tends to be high tech. But things like, you know, better management of fish stocks is not, you know, there's not a lot of like technology. In fact, it's like, yes, please steal, you know, the like, you know, uh, good methods of management. Let's learn from each other here. I'm concerned that when the U.S. is halting academic collaborations and putting a limit on, on this kind of exchange, which is heightened, of course, by COVID and the travel restrictions there, 
that areas like marine environment will also, you know, face obstacles in, in terms of making progress on some of these issues. But I do think there's a lot that we can still do with China. Another area is figuring out ways to protect sensitive areas on the high seas. And because we have a lot of these, these shared interests, I think it's really important that progress continue on this front. And it can also serve as an example for other areas of contention, too. That's really great and very, it's, it is good that there are still some areas that you can be a bit optimistic about cooperation, because I guess there's just such a manifest interest for both countries in protecting this resource. So hopefully this will be an area where we can continue to see some progress. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, are China and the U.S. involved and active in any key international organizations, be it the U.N. or other environmental-focused organizations that are doing something to coordinate activity protecting this resource? Yeah, so I, I don't think right now that there's any forum that was like that ocean sidetrack in the S the SNED where you're talking about like US-China cooperation across a wide range of ocean activities. And so I think, yeah, so I, I do think it would be useful to, to bring something like that back. To, um, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of, there was a lot of criticism about the SNED being so high level that not that much was accomplished. But I, I do think that level really matters too, you know, that, that kind of high level exchange um, and the commitments made there you know, that are then delegated to the more functional staff that implement them. I think that's, that's really important. Otherwise, there are a lot of venues that bring the U.S. and China together on, you know, these different specific issues. So the WTO right now is hosting, they have been for many years, a series of meetings to remove fishery subsidies. Um, so they're working together through that. Uh, the U.N. also has had a series of conferences to figure out an agreement on managing biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction called BBNJ. And so, you know, again, this is with a lot of other countries, but the U.S. and China will be present at those. The U.S. and China are also participating in different regional fisheries management organization meetings. So these are, you know, RFMOs that manage generally like specific fisheries or, or um, specific regions uh, for, you know, a, a few different fish stocks. Um, so tuna, for example, there's a lot of tuna RFMOs. And so the, the U.S. and China will interact there. Um, China is hosting the Convention on Biodiversity, the CBD. It was supposed to be this year, but it's put off till next year. And that's biodiversity in general. So it's not just marine biodiversity, but you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for China, I think, you know, as, as the host to, to make some progress. And um, hopefully the U.S. will go to that and, you know, and there'll be some progress there. The U.S. was hosting the Our Oceans Conference. And at the last one in Indonesia, the Chinese didn't attend that, unfortunately. So that was, I think, a, a lost opportunity. But yeah, so there are some other international organizations that will bring both the US and China to the table. Great, thank you so much. Those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for, for briefing me on this topic. And it's definitely, I think it's really important to introduce these kinds of issues to people who don't work in the STEM fields, for example, or who don't work in, you know, environmental conservation, but who are interested in China, because I, you know, I think this is a very important issue relating to U.S.-China relations. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I really do think it's, it's still one of the few areas where I think we can make some progress. 
For more on U.S.-China interaction in key developing sectors, visit us at ncuscr.org slash horizons.